Well, good morning, everyone. I will open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, as always, for the time that we have as a class to share our prayer requests with each other, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to teach, but Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to be a part of one another's lives, to share our burdens with each other. And Lord, I know we've shared many things today, but there are many unspoken burdens, I don't doubt, in each one of our hearts. So I pray, Lord, that you'll meet our needs fully and completely as you've promised to do. And I pray for our time of teaching, that you'll give me wisdom to proclaim the truth and that you will give us ears to hear and apply it to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to continue, and I hope to finish this section of First Peter chapter 1. Um, I'm going to, when I originally prepared my notes, I wasn't planning to do this, but if I can find my Bible app, I'm going to start today by reading the first 11 verses. Then I'm going to give the quick, I normally do a summary, I'm going to give a summary, but I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and we're covering specifically verses 10 and 11. That's what I started last week, that's what I will finish today, but... Um, Follow along in your version as I read the first 11 verses, the introductory section of 2 Peter, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellent. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness... And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble." For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter, in these introductory verses, is really setting the stage for what he's going to talk about. And he begins by, of course, reminding us of the blessings of our salvation and the abundant provision the Lord has made for us through his word he called us, He saved us, it's all the work of the Lord. He gave us His Word by His divine power. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. There is nothing we lack to be able to do what God has called us to do. But He expects us, with all that He's given us, to be active in living out our faith. Producing the godly characteristics that are found in verses 5 through 7. And we have... In essence, two options, so to speak. A profession of faith can either bear fruit or many of the things that Pastor Steve was talking about this morning can result in a blindness. 
that pretends and professes but is not actually saved. In all of this, this is a diligent labor. It requires effort. And as Peter brings this section to a close, he's really giving more exhortations along those lines. And he's dealing with the topic in verses 10 and 11 of really what would be the outcome of us doing all these things is that we would have assurance of our salvation. We would know that God has saved us. And so as I went through and outlined it last week, and I'll briefly review what we talked about, but I basically outlined it as the promises of our assurance. And there are three promises. And the first one we covered last week, and it's this, assurance, certainty is obtainable. Assurance is obtainable. He says, therefore, brethren, and this is all we covered last week, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. So Peter's not deviating from what he's already done. He's emphasizing that God's the one who calls. God's the one who chooses. God does the work. But he's telling us in a loving way, calling us brethren, brothers. He loved the people to whom he was writing. He's saying exert all of your energies. There's an urgency. Make sure that you are in the faith. Therefore, ties back into all of the godly characteristics that we're supposed to exhibit, verses 8 and 9, where we could either be bearing fruit or we could be blind. And he's saying, because of all these things, exert your efforts to make sure you know. Implicit in that is the fact that we can know. I read from 1 John 5.13, I'll read again, there are many other verses like it. But the Apostle John says to his hearers, why he wrote the letter. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So we can know, but what Peter is saying, consistent with the rest of Scripture, is that the way we know is because it impacts our lives. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Part of the Great Commission is teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. What he's saying is that the way we evaluate whether God has called and chosen us is to look in the mirror. He's not saying we can earn our salvation, we don't earn our calling or choosing, but if we've genuinely been converted, if we genuinely have the Spirit of God, there should be some evidence based on the trajectory of our life that we are becoming more like Jesus. Those characteristics in verses 5 through 7 are reflected even imperfectly in our lives. Are we growing in obedience? Do we hate our sin when we fall short? Are we striving to follow Jesus? Ultimately, our salvation is all of God, but the proof of our salvation is something that only we can look and see. In fact, it was very personal. Each one of us is supposed to be making certain about our calling. I can't make certain about your calling. Many times I've had people that ask me if I think they're saved, I never answer the question and say yes or no. I just start talking about their life. When did you say you came to faith? Tell me what's been going on. And there are people that decades of faithfulness, I say it's evident based on what you're saying. This is what the scripture says. Your life matches up with that. And there are other people that I can say there's never been anything other than a prayer. And as I shared last week, that was, or at some point, that was my testimony. So, 
we, that's a brief review of where we are. We're going to push forward today and finish this. The promises of our assurance. The first was assurance is obtainable. Second, assurance leads to stability. Assurance leads to stability. And this really is in the context of the craziness of living a life on a fallen planet in chaotic times that existed 2,000 years ago that exists today. But Peter continues in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Now, this is one of those verses that I think I introduced this whole section saying it's understandable, but there are points where we have to be careful. If you just looked at it in isolation, didn't hold it in context, it could look as though perhaps it's contradictory to other scripture, but it's not. But we'll walk through this and and we'll see the difference. He says, for as long as you practice these things, implicit in that, there's a promise there. He's saying this will occur. What things, again, verses 5 through 7, the moral excellence and the knowledge and the self-control and the perseverance and the godliness and brotherly kindness and love. In other words, if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're producing in increasing amounts the fruit of the Spirit, if you're obeying Jesus' commands because you love Him. Again, he's not talking about perfection, but he is saying that if the pattern of your life is exhibiting these qualities, there will be a guaranteed outcome. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Now, this is the part where we have to be careful. When I was looking at my notes, if if I showed you, maybe I've showed you before, I normally, before I ever start studying commentaries, I have the Scriptures printed out on paper and I'm writing notes. And I wrote this verse in there. Peter says, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. I knew the verse... James 3, verse 2 begins, for we all stumble in many ways. So which is it? Well, let me try and explain. It's both. And it has to do with the word stumble and the context. And these are the things that we always, as we study our Bibles, want to do. And the word stumble has different meanings in different contexts. There's no contradiction in Scripture. They're not talking at cross purposes. They're just talking about different things. Now again, they are using the same metaphor, stumble. We understand it. You trip, you fall. It is talking about, in the big picture, Peter is talking about a reversal, a failure. A complete reversal away from what you claim to believe. Peter, I believe, is talking about the issue of apostasy. Falling away from the faith. Claiming to believe and then proving it was a lie. Now, a true believer cannot lose their salvation. That's taught clearly in Scripture. I always go to John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. It's not the only place that teaches assurance, but it's crystal clear if you genuinely know the Lord, nothing can take you away from Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Sadly, I've heard poor teaching that says, well, nobody can snatch you out, but you can take yourself out. Well, wait a minute. So I'm greater than God? So, so God has a death grip that nobody, including Satan, can take away, but I can pry his fingers off of me? No. If you know Christ, you know Christ. You're his. He has you. You're secure. But Peter also knows, again, it was what part of what Pastor C was talking about. There are a lot of people that know facts that are religious in terms of their appearance who don't genuinely believe. They will have been in the church. They'll have experienced life with genuine believers. Some of them will have been the recipients of the spiritual fruit produced by others. But they don't genuinely have root and they'll fall away. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 describes this. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, this doesn't mean they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, it just means they experienced spiritual gifts. So, for example, an unbeliever in our midst may be shown the love of Christ. Through the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, an unbeliever in our midst that stayed with us for years would have experienced all those things. They would have been directed to them. They would have been partakers of those gifts. Verse 5, And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. The greatest experience, the greatest Example of this, we all understand, is Judas Iscariot. Can't imagine what he saw. He was one of the twelve. He was in the inner circle. He was following Jesus. It appears from Scripture that he was actually even given the power by Jesus to work miracles, even though he didn't really believe. Everybody that knew Judas up until the end would have said, oh, that's one of Jesus' disciples. We, we know him. He's one of the twelve. He's, he, he's, he's in there. He was an unbeliever. So Peter is simply saying this. When he's saying we will never stumble, he's simply saying that if you're exhibiting the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, if you're pursuing godliness, not by your own strength, but by God working in you, God is at work in you to bring about His purposes. If that's the case, you're not going to stumble. You're not going to fall away. In the context of His teaching about false teachers, they're not going to be susceptible to be led astray ultimately. And that is the danger they face. But we have the assurance that we'll continue on. I think the Apostle Paul said something very similar in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 21 to 23. He said, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I, Paul, was made a minister. 
Now again, neither Paul nor Peter is saying that our salvation is dependent upon ourselves. We don't work so that the Father keeps His love on us. But, if our lives exhibit the evidences of salvation, if we are following the Lord imperfectly, we all do, we, we struggle, but if we're following the Lord, then we're not going to lose our assurance. We're not going to lose, of course, our salvation, but we're not going to lose the assurance of salvation because we realize as much as we hate our sin, we're still fighting the battle. We lose some. We should win more than we do. But if we look at our lives, we see evidence that God is at work in us. And then we have stability in our faith. We won't have to worry about our eternal security because we'll see the evidence in our own lives, imperfect as it is, that God's working in us. Now what about James' words? For we all stumble in many ways. James is talking about the reality of everyday life for a believer. He's using the same term, the same metaphor. But James is talking about the sins we commit. We do sin. We shouldn't. But as believers, we do. And he's simply telling us in the context of a discussion about the need to control our tongue that we all slip up. In fact, what he goes on to say is that if you can control your tongue, you're a perfect man which there aren't any perfect men because we don't control our tongue. But the point is, they're not contradicting each other, talking about the same thing. They're talking about different things. James is simply acknowledging that even as a believer, we struggle and we stumble and we fall, meaning we sin when we shouldn't. This is one of those things where it takes balance and nuance. I feel inadequate as a communicator because I understand what he's saying, but it's also hard sometimes to fully portray it. Again, nobody is saying that a believer has to be perfect in their life. They should be perfect. Be holy as God is holy. Don't misunderstand. That is the standard. But we don't attain the standard to our own shame. Which is why I always find it fascinating, but as you read the New Testament, what you see over and over by author after author in writing letters to Christians is stop sinning. There's a reason he has to do that, because Christians keep sinning. And the Holy Spirit, through all these different men, at different points, talks about all areas of life, saying, stop, 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 stop. And 2,000 years later, we still need to be told, stop, 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 stop. That's what James is talking about. But Peter's telling us that, look, yes, we need to not sin. If you recall in our study of First Peter, he's the one. Be holy as God is holy. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. But what he's acknowledging is that if you see that you're fighting the battle, imperfect as it is, if you're trying to walk in the ways of the Lord, if you're trying to obey the commands of Jesus, if you see evidence of that fruit in your life, then you're not going to stumble out of the faith. The imagery is of a sure-footed animal of a horse. I remember years ago, Debbie and I, with one of her sisters and her sister's husband, we went in Yosemite National Park and we went on a horse ride. They have these horses that you can ride through the park. I'm not a horse rider. My grandpa had a horse when I was little, but he held the bridle and led me around flat surface. Yosemite's not flat. And you're riding, walking, and these horses, I don't know if you see it, these giant animals and their ankles are about as big as my finger, it looks like. 
at least when you're sitting on it and you're on a mountain trail and you're looking over and the but they never stumble. They never stumble. That's the type of imagery here, sure-footed. Life will buffet us. But if we're following the Lord, if we're striving for obedience, Proverbs will be a reality for us. Proverbs 3.23, Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. And the promise of Jude will be ours. Verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. When we know we're saved, we have confidence and we will stand. So that's the first two promises of our assurance. Assurance is obtainable. Assurance leads to stability. And the third promise of our assurance, assurance brings future blessings. Assurance brings future blessings. And probably the articulation of this is not perfect, but in essence what I'm saying is that if you have assurance, you can look forward to blessings that are assuredly yours. Verse 11 says this, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And again, this is one of those verses that if you look at it quickly, it, it can trip you up, but I think it's understandable. In fact, it was it's so much here and it's so it's not so much that it's complicated, it's just very deep that I thought about making this its own lesson. In fact, I had convinced myself to do that yesterday, and then I decided, no, I'm gonna go ahead and finish this and we'll put it here and I'll finish it today. And again, I think I can explain this to you, but when you read it at first glance, if you're not careful, it sounds like it's saying, this is how you get to heaven. Do these things and you'll get to heaven, which of course would be workspace. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Again, if you're not careful and you read this version, you'd say, oh, that's how you find the hidden door. But that's not what's being said here. He's not saying you do these things and God will open a special side entrance and you'll come in. That's what works-based salvation is always about. Do enough. And at some point, and you'll never know, but there's a threshold and you hope you hit it. And when you die, you'll find out. Peter's not saying that. He's not contradicting the plain teaching of Scripture. I've read this over and over at the beginning of this letter. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Peter is in no way contradicting this, and in fact, he's already affirmed those same teachings by talking about God's calling and choosing, and God doing the work. Rather, he's talking about what it will look like on that final day when we actually get to the finish line. Part of what I wrote in my notes is I know from outs of Scripture, at the moment we're saved, we already have eternal security. We already have our entrance into heaven. We have the inheritance already reserved for us. So let me try and explain this. I hope the Lord will give me the ability what he's talking about. For in this way certainly is talking about our exhibiting evidence of salvation, our walking in obedience, 
our practicing these things that are characteristic of those who are genuinely saved. And it all has to do with something that will happen to believers when we stand before the Lord. Now, there's an aspect of the fact that Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sins that we will never give an account to God for our sin. That's all done with. When we get to heaven, we don't have to try and justify why we committed this sin, this sin, this sin. It's all done. It's been taken away. The decrees against us have been nailed to the cross. When God sees us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation, for he has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns himself with her jewel. We are seen by God as being in Christ. When Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. We won't give an account for our sin. Jesus took all of that away. Philippians 3, 9, And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's hard to picture because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ now. And we know We don't look righteous because we still sin. So in no way is there a judgment for our sin, so to speak, in heaven. Jesus took care of that. But the scriptures do teach there will be an evaluation of our lives as believers as God gives rewards for faithfulness. There's an aspect where the Bible talks about separating the sheep from the goats. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 34. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and it will separate them from one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. All believers experience that. But based on the teaching of all of Scripture, there's an aspect where there will be differentiation based on what did we do with the faith that we were given. So, for example, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 says this, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to whether he has done, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3 says this. And again, for believers, this isn't a judgment or heaven or hell. We're in heaven, but it's looking at our works. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. 
If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If a man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet yet so is through fire. So I think here is what Peter is saying, using some imagery that I'll explain in a minute. He's simply saying that as we walk in obedience, as we practice these things, as we make it our priority to exhibit more and more of the character of Jesus, we're building up rewards for ourselves. Not only will we have assurance of our salvation, but when we get to heaven, God will provide to us the ultimate welcome. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter in the joy of your master. I think that's the type of imagery that Peter's looking at. The experts tell us, and more than one commentator alluded to this, when he says it will be abundantly supplied to you, he's borrowing imagery that came from the arena of Olympic-type champions. And the imagery is this. When somebody won the Olympic Games back then, and at times there are things like this now, but at that time, when people won something at the Olympic Games, they would come to their hometown, and their hometown would have a special celebration for them. There'd be a special entrance into the city, basically everyone coming out to hail the conquering victor. Not in the military sense, but of course in the athletic sense. But the idea was there was a special welcome a special preparation that shined the spotlight and said, you did well. What Peter is saying is when we get to the entrance of the eternal kingdom, the kingdom that lasts forever, when we're going to be with Jesus, he's going to abundantly supply that welcome into heaven. That that entrance will be for us. It's a silly imagery, but as I was reading the commentaries, I couldn't help but think back to when I was 12 years old. I wasn't a believer, so this is a secular analogy, but it makes sense because I think this is the type of imagery here. My hometown up in Perry, Taylor County is the name of it, I was on the all-star baseball team. And I played second base, and we were a small town with small everything. But we were in a district with Tallahassee, a lot of big kids, a lot of fancy things, and we won our district, which was miraculous. And we came to the state tournament in August of 1979. I was 12 years old in St. Pete, of all places. And we won the state championship. Really, it was remarkable. And we were actually pretty dominant. We only lost one game, and for a 12-year-old, that's pretty good. You know, you're getting a state championship. And when we got back to Perry, I remember they met us at the county line. They had a fire truck, you know, and I mean, it's a Perry. So they took us to McDonald's. Woohoo! So, I mean, you can't do more than roll out the welcome mat in Perry. So, but I had that imagery. The idea is God is waiting for us. And there's a special greeting for you. It's abundantly welcomed into heaven. And of course, the glory all goes to God. It doesn't go to us. But he's saying, God will pour out his blessings upon us for our obedience, for our faithfulness. It'll be special. 
It'll be over and above. And we'll hear those words, well done. That's what our assurance promises us. We can look forward to that. That's coming for us. And we'll be a part of it. And I can assure you at that moment, we won't be comparing ourselves to anyone else because God will be looking at us. He'll be looking at you and He'll be looking at me. And He'll say, well done. So I pray as we've finished this opening section, particularly in your own life, that you'll look carefully at this issue of assurance. At any given moment of time, the picture can be distorted. But you know your heart. Look at the totality. I traced my salvation in 1993. I look at the whole of my life. At any given moment, I'm a failure. That's probably true of all of us. But look at the big picture and make certain of God's calling and choosing of you because there's blessings for you if you do. Please join me as I close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, at times our struggles are so great against sin that we can't fathom that you love us. We can't fathom that you would have patience with us. And yet, Lord, the promise of your word is that you do love us. In fact, you knew about our struggles before you sent Jesus to die for us and you loved us anyway. I thank you for the assurance, Lord, that we can have of the gracious work that you've done in our lives. But I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters that are hearing my voice. Lord, I pray that they would examine themselves to make certain, to test themselves, to work hard to be sure of their calling and choosing from you. Lord, we heard a powerful message today from Pastor Steve about false teachers and false disciples. Lord, help that not be any one of us. Help us be able to look at your word and see that we are doers of your word and not merely hearers who delude ourselves. Lord, forgive us for all those times when we fall short, but I pray that you would encourage us to keep pressing on to finish the race so that one day, Lord, we can see you and hear from your lips. Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.